You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series Crux, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Currently on Sunday mornings, we are studying through the book of Colossians, and uh, we've called this series Crux. Now, the word crux uh, means the decisive or most important issue at point. And interestingly, the word crux is also literally just the Latin word for the cross. And so as Christians, that's precisely what we believe, that the cross of Jesus Christ is the decisive, most important point of all of history. It is the crux of our lives. It is the crux of history, and it is the crux of our eternal destiny. And that is the core message of the book of Colossians. It's about exalting Jesus, who he is, and helping us to see so crystal clearly what he did for us and why it changes everything. Seven out of ten deaths in America occur as a result of what are called chronic conditions. These are things like heart disease, uh, diabetes, liver disease, things like that. Things which in many cases could have been prevented. And, uh, and so that's what, for, for that reason, uh, preventive medicine is the fastest growing area of healthcare in the United States. The idea behind preventive medicine is that it's better and it's more cost effective to prevent people from getting sick in the first place than it is to just treat them once they've gotten sick or they've developed some kind of chronic condition. So it's about being proactive rather than reactive. So they encourage you to take your vitamins and get exercise when you're healthy so that you stay healthy, right? And so preventative medicine has been very effective. Now the same principles that are true for preventive medicine are also true for many areas of our lives. Uh, Rather than being reactive and only fighting fires, you know, and dealing with things when they become a crisis, it's much better to be proactive and never have those things come up in the first place. Now here in Colossians, what we have in this letter is a little bit of you know, preventive medicine for the soul. Paul the Apostle is writing a letter to a group of Christians who were actually doing pretty well. I mean, they, they weren't in full crisis mode, but there was a threat of some dangerous teaching that was going around in the area where they lived. And in order per, to prevent them from being led astray, in order to prevent this crisis from happening in the first place, Paul writes this letter to them to speak to them about the incomparableness of Jesus Christ and the uniqueness of the gospel so that they would have such a firm understanding of the gospel and be so enraptured with Jesus and who he is that they would see anything else that ever came along, anything else they were ever confronted with as utterly insufficient and unenticing compared to him. The title of today's message as we begin chapter 2 is Our Treasure and our triumph. And here's what we're going to see in this section. First of all, the struggle is real. Secondly, we're going to talk about the best defense is a good offense. And thirdly, the triumph that changes everything. So the struggle is real, the best defense is a good offense, and the triumph that changes everything. Let's go ahead and read in verse 1. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Now we remember, as we've mentioned before, Paul had never actually met these people that he was writing this letter to. The churches in Colossae and Laodicea were started not by Paul, but by another man named Epaphras, who had been one of Paul's protégés, one of his uh, people who kind of studied under him. And Paul sent Epaphras out to the region of Colossae, which was just 
east of the city of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. He sent him there to this region to take the message of the gospel to that region, to preach the gospel and to start churches. And we know of at least three churches which were started by Epaphras that he pastored also in that region. But when Epaphras needed advice, when he needed, uh, you know, when he was wondering how should he respond to this teaching that was going around, this popular movement in the area where he lived, uh, and he was, you know, this movement was confusing some of the Christians in his churches, Epaphras turned to the Apostle Paul, who had been his mentor and his pastor. And uh, at the time, Paul was in jail in Rome awaiting trial before Caesar. And so Epaphras went and visited Paul while he was in this kind of holding cell. And it was from that visit with Epaphras that Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, sent it back with him as he returned home. Now Paul wanted these people to know, he says right here, I want you to know, even though I've never met you, I I have a struggle on your behalf. I've never seen you face to face, but I care about you so much. I have a struggle for you. It speaks of this kind of internal struggle. This word literally means wrestling. In Greek, it's the word agon, from which we get our word agony or agonize. In other words, Paul is agonizing over them. He's, in other words, saying, I've never met you, but I care so much about you guys that it hurts. He had a deep concern for them, a burning passion. And here's what he was passionate for, verse 2. He says that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He says, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be united. But more than anything else, I want you to really understand the gospel. I want you to really see and understand who Jesus is and what he did for you. This was Paul's passion in life. It was the thing which he was burdened for, agonizing over until he could see it become a reality. At the end of chapter 1, in the last two verses of chapter 1, Paul says this. He says, we proclaim Jesus. And he says, here's why. So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And he says, for this cause I toil, struggling with all of his energy which he powerfully works in me. Paul's passion was to see people come to know Jesus and really understand the gospel so that their lives might be transformed by it, so that they might live full lives and be set free in Christ. And this was Paul's passion. Paul knew also that his passion for this was also God's passion. And therefore, God was the one doing the work through him. But at the same time, he was giving it everything that he had as well. You know, there are plenty of struggles, there are plenty of causes in this world that people get passionate about, that people live their lives for, that people, you know, go to fight for. I was reading this week an article in the LA Times, and it was about uh, people who had dedicated their lives to certain political causes over the years, which we now look back on and say that those were very misguided causes, right? And so many of these people had made great sacrifices with their lives. Some of them had even given their lives for the sake of these causes. They had worked hard. They had cared about them. But now, in retrospect, we look back at these causes and we say, well, those causes are terribly misguided. Some of them are even wrong. And so here, but here was the point. The saddest part of this article was its conclusion. It said, we must conclude that these people lived their lives in vain. Now there's something just so incredibly crushingly sad about that phrase, to me at least, the idea that these people would have lived their lives in vain. 
they cared so much, they wanted to be passionate about something, they wanted to be heroic for something, but yet the cause they were passionate about was really ended up being in vain. I think that all of us on some level want to be heroic. We want to give our lives for something great, something that really matters. But you have to wonder, you look around at all the causes out there and you wonder, is there anything that's really worth that? Is there anything that's really worth fighting for and sacrificing for and giving everything for? Or should we just say, you know what, it it all kind of doesn't matter in the end anyway and it's all muddled and nothing's really black and white and it's all gray and instead of trying to make myself a hero and and make a big difference you know what I'm just gonna worry about me and take care of myself isn't that what many people do there's certainly a temptation to do that when you look around but there is one thing you see there is one cause there is something for which God himself was willing to give his own life, right? When we look at Jesus, we see what God was passionate about. We see his struggle that he was willing to sacrifice everything for. Jesus was burdened. He was agonized over the spiritual condition of lost souls, people who were alienated from God, living without hope apart from God in the world, people living in bondage to sin or or some kind of addiction or other problem. He agonized over things that were wrong in this world, things that may be the way that they are, but we all know it's not the way that it should be. He agonized over those things that they would be made right. He agonized over people not living up to their God-given purpose and potential and being the people who God created them to be. You know, if God himself was willing to give his life for this cause, I'd say it's a cause worth living for. It's a cause worth giving everything for. A life lived for that cause, a life spent for that cause is a life well lived. The sacrifice, uh, to sacrifice for that cause is not to sacrifice in vain. And Paul the Apostle took on that same burden, that same struggle for which Jesus had lived his life and given his life. And now Paul the Apostle, he says, he agonizes until he can see all people come to full assurance and understanding of this glorious message, this glorious truth of the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus did and what it means for us. Proverbs 11 verse 25 says this very interesting thing. It says this, Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. I'll say it again. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Uh, In Israel, there are two major bodies of water. Uh, One of them is the Sea of Galilee in the north of Israel, which is teeming with life. There are certain species of birds that only live there. It's full of fish. And the other body of water in Israel is the Dead Sea, which is the most toxic body of water on the face of the earth. Nothing lives in it, not even microbes. And even if you ingest a small amount of that water, a small amount of it is enough to actually kill you. So you have in this one place two bodies of water, one very healthy, full of life, the other one the most toxic body of water on earth. What's interesting is that both the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea are fed by the same source. They're both fed by the Jordan River. The difference between them, though, is this, that while the Dead Sea has both an inlet and an outlet, the, I'm sorry, the Sea of Galilee has an inlet and an outlet, the Dead Sea only has an inlet. It has no outlet. The water comes in and it has nowhere to go. And in our lives too, the, here's the deal. If, if we're always taking in, if we're always wanting to be fed, but we're never giving out, 
It is only a matter of time before you become toxic, before you become devoid of life like the Dead Sea. Now think about how incredible this is. The Apostle Paul says, I am agonizing, I'm struggling for you, I'm agonizing over you, I'm concerned about you, I'm praying with everything I've got for you. Now think about this, where was the Apostle Paul when he wrote this? He was in jail. He was in jail, accused of a crime that he didn't commit. He's in a holding cell where he's there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, chained to guards who would be switched out every six hours, and he's awaiting a trial where very likely he's going to be executed. But yet, rather than agonizing over his own situation... Rather than saying, look, I know you guys got problems, but I got bigger problems, right? Rather than worrying about his own plight, we see here Paul saying, I am so concerned, I'm agonizing over what's going on with you guys. Did Paul have his own problems? Didn't Paul have his own struggles and difficulties to worry about? Didn't Paul have things which were stressing him out and wearing him down? Absolutely, in fact, more than most of us will ever experience in our lives. And yet... Rather than being worried and occupied with himself, here we see him concerned with, agonizing over these other people and their needs. And so let me ask you this. Do you have an outlet, right? Are you burdened for the same things that God is burdened for? Are you struggling and wrestling for those things? If you are, like the Sea of Galilee, you'll be full of life. He who waters will be watered, right? He who bl- brings blessing will be enriched. But if you're not, if, you're, if your main concern in life is always, what can I get out of this? Or, or what can these people do for me? Or how can I get what I need? How can I get my needs met? How can I get what I want out of this? If you're always concerned about you taking in and not giving out, right, no outlet, you're going to be like the Dead Sea. You're going to be toxic and devoid of life. Let me ask you, do you have an outlet if you're looking for one? I mean, we've talked a lot about this morning. Uh, We have plenty of opportunities for you to serve here through outreaches in our community, through ministries here at the church. But here's the the main point of all of this. The struggle is real, and we want to be part of it. The struggle for which God was willing to lay down his life, may we be passionate about that same thing, that same cause as well. May we be those who have freely received and those who pour back out for the sake of others. Let's continue on from verse 3. It says this, In whom, this is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Again, like I, like I said a minute ago, the Colossian and Laodicean Christians were actually doing pretty great. Like they, they weren't in full crisis mode by any means. In fact, he says here, I commend you guys. I rejoice over this. You are standing firm in your faith. That's awesome. This letter was preventive medicine. Paul wants to address the issue before it becomes an issue, before it becomes a problem, so that it doesn't become a problem. And here's his big point in verse 3, in which he's directly addressing the teaching that was going around in the area of Colossae. He says in verse 3, In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, the, the concept that was popular in Colossae is a concept that's also very popular uh, where we live in our day. And it was this, to say that no one religion has all the truth, right? Like no one religion has the corner on everything. Like no one tradition 
can be possibly completely right. So what we need to do is we need to take a little bit from here and a little bit from there, from this tradition, from that religion. We'll stir it all together and we'll practice them all. Today, what we refer, we refer to this as universalism. See, the only thing about universalism is like many things, uh, they say this, nobody's wrong, everybody's right, except for the people who don't agree with us, and they're completely wrong, right? You get what I'm saying? Like, uh, in, the end, in the end, just like everything else, they too are exclusive. Everybody's exclusive when you really get down to it. So people in Colossae, they would say to the Christians there, they would say, oh, you're a Christian. Well, that's cool. I mean, Jesus was a good dude and all. I mean, that's a good start to be a Christian, but you know, I mean, there are, there are deeper things out there. And the Christian would say, well, what do you mean there's deeper things out there? And they say, well, you know, I mean, Christianity has some things, right? It's a great start. But if you really want to know the deep stuff, if you really want insight into the spiritual mysteries, then you're going to have to look beyond Christianity. You're going to have to come with us, and we'll, we'll show you some stuff beyond Christianity. And Paul here is saying to them, don't fall for that for a second. Not even for a minute. Don't fall for it because here's the deal. In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything that you desire, everything that people are looking for here and there and all these different places, it's found, every bit of it is found in Jesus. He says these people, they don't realize it because they don't really know who Jesus is. They don't understand. They think Jesus was just a teacher of morality. But in fact, he was so much more than that. He says down in verse 9, if you look down, he says, In Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He was more than just a teacher of morality. In him is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I read a story about uh, William Randolph Hearst. Uh, he was a kind of like mogul in the media industry in the early 20th century, owned a bunch of newspapers. If you've ever been out to Central California, there's the Hearst Castle. That was his house. Kind of the deal with him is he just had more money than he knew what to do with. And so he just kept building this crazy house. Uh, but here's the story, and uh, I hear that it's true. One day he was looking through a, a book of famous artwork, and a particular painting caught his eye, and he said, I want that painting. So he called his aides in, and he told them, I want this painting for my collection. Your task now is to go and find this painting and purchase it for me. And so they went and they made some inquiries, and they came back to William Randolph Hearst, and they told him that they were unable to locate this painting that he was looking for. And he told them, well, listen, if you care about your jobs, you're going to go find that painting for me. So they, they went out, and they searched high and low, and a few months later, they returned, and they told him, we found the painting. We found this treasure that you were looking for. And he said, well, okay, great. Did you purchase it? Where's it at? And they said, well, no, we didn't purchase it. Uh, and he said, well, why not? And he said, well, because we found it in one of your warehouses. Like, you already owned it. Like, you've owned it for years. In the same way, Paul is telling the Colossians, if you've got Jesus, you've already got it all, right? You've got all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all in him. If you've got Jesus, you've got it. You don't need to look elsewhere. All of the deep spiritual mysteries are revealed in him. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. There is nothing more profound than Jesus. In him is found the fulfillment of every desire of the human heart. Another story is told. Uh, in the days of the Roman Empire, there was a wealthy senator who became estranged from his 
only son. And when the senator died, they opened up his will, and the will said, Because my son is a foolish man who does not appreciate me, I leave all of my worldly possessions to my loyal slave, Marcellus. However, because I am a man of grace, I will allow my son to have one of my possessions of his choosing. And the officiator of the will said, Okay, well, you get to choose one thing. What will it be? And the son said, Easy. I'll take Marcellus, right? And that's the idea. You take Jesus and you get it all. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, everything you need, it's all in him. So the struggle is real. Even though Paul is in jail, his focus, his concern, his passion is not for himself, but it's for others. That they would know Jesus, that they would understand the gospel so that their lives would be transformed and their eternal destinies would be secured. The struggle was real. And likewise, if you want to be blessed, if you want to be watered, if you want to be full of life and health, here's how. Be focused on others like Paul was, like Jesus was. Because if not, you will become toxic. Paul's struggle, Jesus' struggle, make it your struggle. And you will find that as you pour yourself out for others, you are continually filled. Let's continue on to our second point, and that's this. The best defense is a good offense. That's quote sound familiar to anybody? Vince Lombardi, the very famous coach of the uh, Green Bay Packers, that was his quote. He said, the best defense is a good offense. But long before Vince Lombardi said that, there were other people saying similar things. For example, George Washington, when talking about his strategy in the Revolutionary War, this is what he said. Offensive operations, oftentimes, are the surest, if not the only means, of defense. A chess expert named Brian Quick wrote this. He said, in chess, attack is the process of making pieces do something useful, and it is the process by which you remove obstructions. In chess, one thing is always true. It is bad to be passive. Military strategist named Richard Betts said this, a defense cannot conquer territory. A defense alone only delays defeat. And that is so true in so many areas of our lives. If you're always just fighting fires and playing defense, uh, you're missing it, right? If, if you want to prevent, for example, adultery from coming into your marriage, the best defense is a good offense. Cultivate your marriage like you would a garden, right? Tend it, prune it, water it. If you want to not get fired from your job, here's a great way to do that. The best defense is a good offense. Rather than focusing on what do I need to do to not get fired, focus on doing a great job. And Paul the Apostle, he understood this principle very well. And that's why rather than spending the majority of his time writing to the Colossians about what was wrong with the uh, errant teaching that was going on out there, instead he focused his attention on what was right about Jesus so that they would be experts about the gospel. And so Paul says this in verse 6. He says, Therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How does a person receive Christ Jesus as Lord? How do you do that? Here's how. Well, first of all, you do it by trusting in Jesus. You do it by not looking to yourself. You do it through simple faith in the promises of God. And the same way that you become a Christian is also the same way that you progress as a Christian, the same way that you continue on with Jesus moving forward. In other words, once you've received Jesus as your Lord, once you've given your life to Christ, once you've received salvation, here's his point. Don't stop there, right? That's just the beginning. 
And don't say, oh, I got started by believing the gospel, but now moving forward, I need to move beyond the gospel. I need to move to other things, you know, asceticism or rules and laws or this, you know, wisdom or that wisdom. No. Paul says, no way. There is no deeper truth than the gospel. There is nowhere else to go but the gospel. The gospel isn't just what you believe in order to become a Christian. The gospel is also the means by which you grow as a Christian. In other words, the gospel isn't just the ABCs, the basics. The gospel isn't just the ABCs. It's the A to Z. There's nothing more profound in all the world than that the God of the universe, the author of all wisdom and knowledge, would come and give himself to you and then dwell within you. And that is exactly what we read in verse 9 and 10. Let's read it together. It says this, For in him, that's in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. There is nothing more spiritually profound in all the world than this idea that God would dwell inside of you, that he would fill you, that he who is full of all wisdom and power, that he would be intimately involved in your life, even dwelling inside of you. Just try to wrap your mind around that for the next thousand years. It should keep you occupied. The same gospel that you embrace in order to become a Christian, true maturity means Not leaving the gospel, but going deeper in the gospel and applying the gospel to every area of your life and letting it transform the way that you think and the way that you live. He says in verse 7, he says, So walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So we got three metaphors here. Each one of them describes a part of what it means to be a Christian. The first one is this. It says the Christian life is a walk. Right? The Christian life is a walk. What does a walk imply? It implies a journey going from one place to another, progressing, always moving forward, and it's important that you stay on the right path. A walk also implies relationship. Throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, when we read about people, it says that they walked with God. That implies that they had a relationship with God. Adam walked with God. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. Think about who are the people that you go on walks for. They're your friends. They're your family members. They're people who you want to spend time with and cultivate a relationship with. To walk with someone also implies that you're going together in the same direction. So to be a Christian is to walk with God and with other people on this journey, in this particular direction, in this particular progression from one place to another. Secondly, the Christian life isn't only a walk. Christian life is also about growth, like a tree that puts down its roots into the right soil and grows from a tender and fragile sapling into a large and immovable tree that people can take refuge under. Thirdly, the Christian life is also a building process where you start with a foundation and you build upon that foundation. The best defense is a good offense. Just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him, grow in Him, build upon that foundation. And how do you do that? You do that by understanding, by knowing the gospel and how it speaks to every area of your life. 
It speaks to your sense of identity. If God of the universe is willing to give his life for you, then what does that say about your identity? What does that say about your worth as a person? The way that you work, the way that you treat your spouse, how you raise your children, how you treat other people, how you deal with difficulty and adversity and hardship and setbacks. The gospel speaks to every one of these areas of our lives as you look to what Jesus did for you on your behalf and what it means for you to live that out in every area of your life. Just as you received him, so walk in him, so grow in him, so build upon that foundation because the best defense is a good offense. Let's read verse 8. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits or elemental principles of the world, and not according to Christ. You know, there's nothing wrong with philosophy per se. In fact, the word philosophy means the love of wisdom. And as Christians, shouldn't we have the highest philosophy, the truest philosophy? Shouldn't we, of all people, have the greatest love of wisdom? Absolutely. Also, there's nothing inherently wrong with human traditions. We have all kinds of human traditions which are not from God, and there's nothing particularly wrong with them. Like, we shoot off fireworks on the 4th of July. There's nothing particularly good or bad about that. It's just a tradition. The problem, Paul says, is when philosophies and human traditions are according to what he calls the elemental principles of this world and not according to Christ. Now, what does that even mean? Well, to give some light on this, we look to another place where Paul uses the same phrase, the elemental principles of the world. And that's in Galatians chapter 4, verse 3. And there, he is referring to the law, and he's referring to the idea of cause and effect, which you could say, you know, the idea of uh, the most basic elemental rule of all of nature. It's an elementary principle. We teach it to our kids. This is the way the world works. You get what you put into things. If you want to succeed, if you want to do well, then you got to work hard. you got to earn it. If you want to have friends, you got to be friendly. If there is any common thread... In all world religions, this is it. You get what you deserve. This is the fundamental principle which is at the heart of every religion except for Christianity. Do you see that? This is the one thing which is absolutely unique, which absolutely sets Christianity apart from every other philosophy and religion in the world. Christianity teaches that God offers us grace. See that what we deserve, even the best of us, this is what Christianity teaches, what the best of us, what we deserve, is still judgment. Because each and every one of us have sinned. We've fallen short. We're not the people we should be, and we know it, and we even fail to live up to our own standards of how, we, how people should act. And so what, what we deserve is, is not God's love. What we deserve is God's judgment, but yet God has chosen to place his love upon us. And it's not because of who we are and what we've done because we've earned it by being so great. It's because of who he is and what he's done on our behalf because he's so great. And he extends to us this offer of something we could never deserve. The offer of salvation, the offer of redemption, of blessing and relationship with him in which he will come and even dwell within us and change us from the inside into the people he created us to be. That teaching, that message of grace is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion and philosophy in the world. When people say to you, as they might have said to the Colossians, you know, all religions basically teach the same thing, 
Your answer should be, yes, you're right, they do. They all function on the same elementary principle of this world, except for Christianity. Christianity teaches something fundamentally different than any other philosophy or religion, and that is the message of the grace of God, which is at the heart of the gospel. So the best defense is a good offense. And now Paul turns our attention back to the gospel, and he gives it this nodge, uh, sorry, this great uh, crescendo. And he says this in verse, uh, verse 11. He says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul says, here's the gospel. Here's what Jesus has done for you. He made you a whole new person altogether. Rather than just cutting off part of you, as in circumcision, in Christ you have been completely, who you were has been completely put to death. The person you used to be, in him you have been completely changed. You have been raised to a new life through his resurrection. You've been born again. You've been born through rebirth, through regeneration. Because of what he did for you, you've become a new person, a completely new creation with different desires, different aspirations, a whole different trajectory in life. And he goes on in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses and canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. See, apart from Jesus, you weren't just a sick person who needed a doctor. You were a dead person who needed a savior. It's interesting when it speaks of this record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. When a criminal was executed by the Romans, uh, they would have a piece of paper on display, which they would hang if a person was crucified, to be hung above their head. And on that piece of paper was written the crime which they had committed for which they were being executed. And if you remember, they did this with Jesus. Uh, they put a piece of paper above his head. And maybe you remember, uh, here's what it says in John's Gospel. It says, it said in three languages, in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And there was even one person as this was being written out who said, wait a second, we shouldn't write King of the Jews. We should write, well, he claimed to be the King of the Jews. But Pontius Pilate, who was writing it, said, no, listen, I've written what I've written. And this paper that would be nailed above a person's head as they were crucified and executed, it was called a titulus, uh, which was a list of the person's crimes. And and the two criminals on either side of Jesus, they too would have had a piece of paper hanging above their head which had their crime written on it. Uh, One of them we know was a murderer. So his, his would have said, you know, his name. And then below it it would have said, murder. And Paul is drawing us a picture here. He's saying this, each and every one of us, we have our own titulus, right? We have a record of all the wrong things that we've ever done. The time that you lied, the time that you did that thing which was unethical, that time when you had lustful thoughts and fantasies about a person who's not your spouse, the time when you felt hatred in your heart towards another person. Each of us has a titulus, the the record of the wrong things that we've done in our lives, or even the right things that we should have done but we failed to do when we fell short in those ways the record of our wrongdoings and maybe you say but Nick wait a second I mean nobody's perfect right absolutely right 
That exactly is the problem. Nobody's perfect. We've all fallen short. We've all failed in one way or another. And the problem with that is it says there in verse 14 that there are certain legal requirements that come into play because of that. See, the wages of sin is death. It says in in the Bible, the soul that sins shall surely die. That is the legal requirement for what we've done. Each and every one of us, we have our titulus, that that list of wrongdoings that, that stands against us. But the picture Paul is drawing here is this. That when Jesus hung on the cross, it was your record that was nailed above his head to the tree and as he died he was filling the legal requirements not for his own sins because he had none he was fulfilling the legal requirements for your sins and for my sins so that you could be forgiven so that you could be redeemed so that the price would be paid so that you could now live free from that debt Jesus' death wasn't a defeat it was a victory it was a triumph we read this and we'll conclude with this verse in verse 15 he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him you know sometimes you hear people talk about you know demons and satan and stuff and they talk about it as if there's kind of like this cosmic tug of war going on right between god and good and satan and evil and it's kind of like well satan's kind of winning and unless you jump right now on God's side and start pulling on that rope with all of your might Satan's probably going to win and you don't want that to happen so you better hurry up and you know start pulling your weight well this verse gives us a much more accurate picture of the situation it's not a tug of war in which Satan's kind of winning and you got to help God out so he can maybe win no way it's already done Game over, right? This verse gives us an accurate picture of the spiritual situation in the world. Uh, What appeared for a moment to be a bitter defeat, that God became a man and yet death and evil killed him. It actually turned out to be the greatest moment of triumph and victory. Evil thought that it had won, but the death of Jesus was the death blow to evil itself. Jesus broke the teeth of death itself and evil. The picture Paul is painting here is of actually a Roman military parade. When the Romans would go and they would conquer another uh, nation or army, what they would do is they would disarm them, right, take away all their weapons, and then they would uh, march them through the streets of Rome naked. And it was the ultimate humiliation. Not only defeat, but humiliation. And that is what Jesus did on the cross. He completely triumphed over evil. And so as believers, this is the confidence that we have. That the power of sin and death and evil have been broken. See, Jesus' triumph, it changes everything. It changes everything for us. It means that we've been given a new life in him, an everlasting life. It means that we are forgiven. And it means that evil and death have no more power over us or hold on us. And the day is coming, we're promised, when evil and death will be no more when there will be no more tears and everything will be made right the way it is meant to be. But yet, even though that's the promise we have, right now we do live in this interesting situation, right? This interesting in-between period where Jesus has won the war, but yet death and evil are still present realities that we have to live with and deal with in this world. Now for us who are in Christ, these things no longer have power over us, But there's obviously still evil in the world. There's obviously still death is is a reality we have to live with. And so you might wonder, well, why? Why is there this in-between period? Why the wait? Why why make us wait for that? And here's the reason. 
It's because in this time, in this in-between period, between the defeat, the, the triumph of Jesus and the ultimate conclusion of all things, this is a time when the door is open for people to embrace the gospel and come into God's kingdom and be born again and have new life and put their faith in him and God is patiently waiting and keeping that door open so that more and more people can come in and embrace Jesus and put their faith in the gospel and one day it will be concluded but for today that door remains open that whosoever would call on the name of the Lord whosoever would put their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross you will be redeemed and forgiven and set free and if that's you if you're hearing this today and you say you know what I've never really fully embraced the gospel I've never really put my trust in Jesus I've never made him Lord of my life for real today is the day to do that because there is no guarantee of tomorrow. So I encourage you, all of you, look at what Jesus has done for you and how it changes everything. And today, embrace the gospel. Whether it's for the first time or for the 500th time, embrace the gospel and allow it to become the driving, motivating force in your life, who Jesus is and what he's done. Amen? Would you please stand with me and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your great love for us. Lord, it's almost unfathomable, really, to see all of these riches of of who you are and what you've done. But Lord, I mean, it's hard to wrap our minds around some of this stuff that we're studying and reading about who you are and, and what your death means for us. But Lord, thank you for that. And I pray as we go from this place that these things would continue. We would continue to ponder them. This is what Jesus did for me. This is who Jesus is. And I want to be passionate for the things that he's passionate about. I want to have that same struggle in my heart that he had in his heart that drove him. Lord, we pray that truly that would be true of us. I pray for anyone here today who says, you know what, today is the day. I need to get right with God. I need to, I need to get right with him again. Maybe I was in the past, but I haven't been, I haven't been right with him in a while. And so today I embrace the gospel. I embrace what Jesus did for me. Maybe there's even someone hearing this who would say, you know, I've never really put my faith in Jesus. I pray today would be the day that they make that decision and say yes to you. Lord, do this work in our hearts by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series Crux, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Oh,